Here's three great reasons to get the new Samsung Galaxy S21 5G at T-Mobile. One, it's free for both current and new customers when you trade in an eligible device. Two, T-Mobile's the leader in 5G coverage. So three, you can unleash 5G speeds in more places with your new phone. Get the new Galaxy S21 free at T-Mobile, the leader in 5G coverage. Phone via 24 monthly bill credits plus tax. If you cancel credit, stop and balance on required finance agreement may be due. Contact us. Qualifying credit and consumer plan required. See details at T-Mobile.com. Blog Talk Radio. Amala, 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 Amala,
Hotep, you are listening to the Truth to Power show, and I am Beverly D. And tonight we have Baba Kentu with us. We're doing part two of Game Over, Press Reset. Uh, Baba Kentu, how are you doing this evening? I am doing so good, Sister Beverly D. Good. Um, that I can really put it into words. So <laughs> thank you for asking. How Excellent. Are you? Great, great, great. And before we get into the show, can you tell the people who is Baba Kentu and what are you doing? I, I sure can. Thank you for that opportunity. Well, Baba Kentu is a clinical director of the JED Institute of Learning, which is a behavioral and academic service provider, which provides uh, the seven liberal arts as well as African-centered education. We provide educational opportunities for anyone seeking to increase their skills, pass a test, um, gain grade-level knowledge, get credits, anything that will help you advance the JET Institute of Learning will help you to do that. Uh, Most of our services come in the form of various tutoring, whether online 
are in person, but we also offer counseling and we also offer various forms of consultations and assessments. So that is the basis of who we are and what we do. And you can find us in our services and all of our material at our website, which is JediLearning.com, D-J-E-D-I-L-E-A-R-N-I-N-G.com. Once there, you can also find our social media sites, whether it be Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube. We suggest going to the YouTube or the uh, Instagram page because they seem to be a lot more active, not only with us posting, but also from the audiences there. They just seem to gravitate towards our material more. So if you want to get any idea of what we're doing or just want to connect with us or you are looking for those services, please check out JediLearning.com. Excellent, excellent. So kind of give us a recap of what we talked about last time and where we going tonight. Excellent, excellent. And both times you played some excellent music that put me in the right frame of mind to do exactly what we've been doing and what we're going to do tonight. So game over, press reset. As you all know, a lot of things have happened recently which have caused us uh, to start a new game, essentially. The simulation that we have been playing, the various rules that we've been under are all going by the wayside, and a new set of rules are coming into place. So game over, but that doesn't mean the game ends there. We say press reset. Now press reset is allowing you to start over. You have a clean slate, a clean opportunity. All you have to do is have your vision and your mind in the right place, and you can see and accomplish this new game that you seek to create where you are the beneficiary. All things that we have seen before us with our eyes are figments of the human imagination. Nothing is set in stone. If there is one thing you can count on is that things will change. And if you believe they can change and you want things to change, they will. So the material will be going over these next couple of hours um, continues on with the legacy we started a couple of weeks ago where we did an update of what is going on in the school system, what has happened, and where is it about to go. Because we're firm believers that whatever happens in a larger society will first rear its ugly head in the educational system. So that's where we'll start off. And then we'll take a journey into psychology through behavior analysis and through utopian societies, which will take us through philosophy, through various utopian societies discovered and developed by both European and African settlements. So we will go into a few details about various European settlements, but then we'll end with our very own African utopian societies because that's what we see when we press this reset button. We see a new game. We see a new life. We see a new utopia. So that there is what we'll be going over tonight. Okay. And and isn't it kind of something like, well, do you think that it could be going in a direction like, well, nationalism to me is like, I take care of my house, you take care of your house. 
where right. socialist is more like welfare. You know, I own, I'm the landlord. I let you rent the house, but I you got to go by my rules. So right. Right. I can have my my utopian, and somebody else can have their utopian. We don't have to be forced to be having the same utopian if we want to. And that is exactly the thinking, because it breaks down even further. Each human being is its own universe. So whatever you see and whatever you project is what the reality really is. But just like you said, Sister Beverly D, a group of individuals who get together and say, I want to live my lifestyle like this, may be different from another set of individuals who get together and say, I want to live my lifestyle like this. Who's to say who's right and who's wrong? There's right to say. You make that decision. You determine that. Kuji Chagulia, Swahili for self-determination, second principle of Kwanzaa, and we have to get back to thinking in that manner. That will allow us to form these utopian future societies that we seek to uh, find ourselves in, away from this dog mess and the dogma and just the crap that we've been dealing with for the last four or 500 years. Okay, It is just an intermediate period. It's just a little blip on the screen. If we look at the uh, trails of history, we'll see even in ancient Kemet, there were many times where they had two and three hundred years periods of other people coming in and disrupting their ma'at or their balance. They called those intermediate periods. What we've experienced over these last 100 years, simply an intermediate period. But right now it's time to reclaim that throne. And you're absolutely right. One throne might look totally different from the next throne. I would agree with you on that. So, yeah, a lot to cover tonight. A lot to cover, but I think it's going to be fantastic. I can't wait to get into this material. Okay. We're ready. All right. Oh, okay. Excellent. Excellent. So, just to kind of piggyback on where we left off last time, we just gave an update on what we projected how schools would look like in the future. And we had some predictions. We knew that it would be more of a hybrid where you would not be at school all day long because you didn't need to be because there's so many tools out there for learning and people learn much better when they're in a stress-free environment, learning at their own pace and mastering skills before they proceed to the next level. Things you cannot do in a traditional um, 18-week semester. Okay, you have to go with whatever the teacher is teaching and the patient guide is pacing. So now that all that is out the window and we went over some details on what that's going to look like, we've actually now got uh, hardcore evidence of what the school system is going to look like coming down from not only the CDC, but various other writers who look into this subject. So as a lot of people out there might know, the CDC just a couple of days ago came out with their reopening guidelines. And we're going to take a little look into those reopening guidelines to see what they talk about um, and to see how close we were to our predictions. Also, various other people's 10-point plans for opening up. And it's just very funny that all of this is just happening right now at this point in time because we said the spring would be a new awakening. It would be time for things to reset. And at, right on March 19th, 
the spring equinox, the lockdown started in California. We said, hmm, how long is this going to last? Well, it could last a season, which will take us all the way up to June 20th, which it looks like it may. Or it could take a quarantine, which is 40 days. That would have ended on May 15th. And about last week, we started seeing things start to open back up. So, so far, so good. But that doesn't thing, mean things are not going to change permanently from here on out. We want to get into some evidence of how that might be. The first thing we want to really discuss, though, before we get too deep into that, is some information um, from the CDC, some other information from the CDC that they put out we didn't get to touch on last time. And that was about these autism rates. Um, a couple of years ago, maybe last year, we did a piece called Autism in the African, where we went into detail about uh, Africans' involvement and autism and how they're affected by each other. But what we find today from the CDC, actually this is from Disability Scoop, and the title is CDC, Autism Rate Climbs Again. Because with all the talk about having to take a new vaccination, six different companies are in the super race to come out with this vaccination, people are wondering what is possibly in this cocktail. They're about to start shooting into these people. And with that, obviously, especially the black community, is going to start wondering about the vaccines that we're already dealing with and the different um, accusations that these vaccine companies have received over their inoculations causing various disabilities from ADHD to autism to neurological disorders to uh, polio to paralyzation to scales on their backs to all types. The list goes on and on. You should just look at some of the settlements that um, the uh, inoculation, I guess you would call it board, has had to pay out over the last few years because of all these vaccine injuries. So take a look into that. But before we get into that, let's tap on into this CDC autism rate climbs again. The number of American children diagnosed with autism is on the rise yet again, according to new government data. The CDC said Thursday that one in 54, okay, have a developmental disorder. That's a jump from the one in 59 rate that was reported just two years ago, okay? The latest figures published in the CDC's Morbidity and Mortality Weekly report are based on data collected during 2016. So let's just look at that. We're in 2020. The data that they're telling about is coming from 2016, and it's one in 54 back in 2015. What do we think it is now? Okay, we can only guess. Let's continue on, on this road. Through the agency's Autism and Developmental Disabilities Monitoring Network, which regularly tracks prevalence by reviewing health and educational records for eight-year-olds in 11 communities across the country. Now, this is something that I have a problem with, with the way they do autism rates, and everybody out there should know. They only use 11 communities across the country to determine the overall autism rate. So they pick these various communities. Um, a couple of them are in the same state. So you get some states being tapped twice, but you have whole states being left out. So that means that if you just took a sample from one particular state, you might get totally different rates. As a matter of fact, we see that when we see the results. In New Jersey, you see the highest rate. Well, I think it's like 1 in 29 or something crazy like that. 
In other places, you see some extremely low rates. So, you know, this all goes to say, what are we really looking at? What are we dealing with? Um, we do know it's an, an epidemic, but we just don't know of what proportions. So let's go on. On the plus side, CDC officials said that more children are being evaluated for and diagnosed with autism at younger ages. In addition, this marks the first time that the government monitoring network has seen the same prevalence in black and white children. This is when the heat gets turned up. Some of the increase in autism prevalence might be due to the way children are identified, diagnosed, and receiving services in their communities, said Stuart Shapira, Associate Director for Science and CDC's National Center on Birth Defects and Developmental Disabilities. The increase may also reflect reductions in racial differences in identification of autism. This is my problem, and you're getting this opinion from a psychologist who regularly diagnoses and treats individuals on the autism spectrum. If it is just the case that people are having better um, abilities to assess and diagnose autism, don't you think they would have better abilities to assess and diagnose other developmental disorders as well? Why do we only see an increase in autism? What about mental retardation? What about learning disabilities? What about um, ADHD? What about deaf, hard of hearing, multiple disabilities? Why are these subjects not growing? Why is it just autism? Okay, so you can't hold that argument and say, oh, we just have better identification rates because you're better at identifying everything, not just autism. So we know not to trust the CDC anyway, but let's continue. The gain seen in identification of black children, the latest report found that Hispanic children continue to be diagnosed at lower rates. And both black and Hispanic kids with autism were evaluated for the developmental disorder at older ages than their white peers. Okay. So we'll give you a little bit of information on that. And they get really into the differences about racial, uh, they get deep into the racial differences in this particular piece. Nonetheless, she said, the CDC findings, particularly related to Hispanic children, show that there's still a lot of work to be done here to try to reduce these disparities. And as we've known, boys are four times more likely to be diagnosed with autism than girls. Why is that? We still haven't figured that part out. And about a third of children with autism also have intellectual disabilities. So we see a lot of overlapping data here, a lot of overlapping information. And it doesn't really get too diagnostic in this report. It doesn't tell us why we think this is or where do we go from here. It just gives us the information in 2020 from the data they collected in 2016. So as of right now, from a mainstream perspective, this is all we know. This is the latest information, the most up-to-date information we have on autism spectrum disorders. So any of uh, the families, the village are out there who are experiencing going through this, uh, number one, check the website out, okay? We can connect you to services if you don't have any already in your area, okay, because they are <laughs> – I cannot tell you how many families I'm working with right now who now have to be with their child on the spectrum all day long, where they used to be able to drop them off at school, um, at their services, uh, behavioral services or speech services, occupational services. But now, parent has to be there all day long, and they are struggling, struggling to keep control of their uh, households. 
because some of the extreme outbursts, some of the repetitive type behaviors, some of the uh, just intense incessantness on sameness uh, displayed by individuals on the autism spectrum disorder are too much for a lot of families to handle. And that's one of the main reasons why over 50% of uh, families end up divorced when they have a child that is on the autism spectrum. So you do have help out there. Reach out. And it also helps if you have a culturally responsive uh, service provider. So if you're looking for somebody who not only reflects your cultural values but also looks like you, please let us know. If we can't do it, we will find somebody in your area or help you to do so that can. And that takes us on into our next uh, article. Now, before before we leave the autism, how yes, can you please. tell that a child, what are some of the, the signs that oh, wow, a child has? Oh, wow, that is an has. excellent question. Um, okay. There are three main areas you look for. One is social interaction. The main types of social interaction that you have with a child, however you are able to play with them, you kind of know that. It's a little bit different with children on the spectrum. Number one, they won't really make a lot of eye contact with you. Number two, they will kind of look at you out the side of their eyes. They'll turn their head almost away from you and look at you just out the corner of their eyes. That's one thing you might notice. You might notice them doing something repetitive over and over again, and when anybody tries to get in their way, they get really, really upset or they just have some type of meltdown or breakdown. So that's their social piece. There's another one, difficulty speaking, difficulty expressing thoughts, difficulty writing. Now, this is not always the case because higher-functioning people on the autism spectrum don't have as much of a problem with language speaking, but they still have a difficulty writing. So difficulty with communication and social interaction. And the last one is that insistent on sameness, having to have a routine, doing things over and over so repetitive like that it seems like um, a robotic. If you look at the word autism, we talked about that the last time we were on the show, it came from auto. The Greek word auto, which means by yourself, because it seemed like these children wanted to be by themselves and do the same things over and over, whether they be taking a string and flapping it in front of their faces or rocking back and forth or listening to their favorite uh, music or, you know, certain types of yells or even sometimes self-injurious behavior, hitting themselves, uh, pulling their hair out, scratching themselves, um, scratching others. You know, attacking others because of the difficulty communicating. A lot of times that comes out as aggression. When you want something, instead of asking for it, they'll just go take it. Um, instead of joining the game, they'll just bum rush. If they lose in the game, having just extreme meltdowns because uh, you know that perfection, that strife for perfection all the time is good, but it's almost unhealthy because it causes that problem with social interaction. So. Those are some of the things you would look for at an early age, and you should be able to tell prior to the age of three. As a matter of fact, that's a requirement to get the diagnosis is that prior to the age of three, you are displaying these okay. characteristics. So, mm-hmm. yeah, um, it, it, takes, it takes just some practice, 
and, you know, some training to be able to identify what, what makes that different from any normal child throwing a tantrum. But once you are able to identify the patterns, it is not rocket science. It is really not that hard. You can do it yourself. So, yeah. good question. Especially, especially at age two and three, you know, we usually call them the terrible twos years when, uh-huh. you know, they, they really active during that time anyway. Right, so. right. So it's really hard to tell. But if you notice. Pay attention, not, yeah. Right, exactly. Paying attention to things, paying attention to you, showing you affection, showing you attention, um, and only dealing with inanimate objects over and over again, you know something might be up. And you might want to um, uh, notify your local, um, they call them regional centers. And they okay. can help you out with either getting services, SSI, you know, sometimes you can get money, uh, depending on the severity of the disabling condition. So that's an excellent question. Very, very good question. Uh, Because we do need to know how to identify this, because as you can see, black and Hispanic children are being uh, evaluated at later dates, which means that parents are either not taking them in early enough so they can get the treatments that are necessary, or they just don't necessarily believe in it. Uh, Ain't nothing wrong with him. He's going to grow out of it. Because sometimes we right. lack the necessary education and um, just information, not even necessary education, just the information to know what to do. So these these are excellent questions, especially for our community, especially for our community. So that takes us right into another article from Disability Scoop, and this kind of bridges the gap between our political situation and the disabilities camp. And this is an article called Disability Rights Film Crip Camp premieres on Netflix. Now, this is not something I would usually, you know, just kind of pick up and watch, but the fact that it is put out by Barack and Michelle Obama made me, you know, turn an eye to it to see what is going on. Because if we remember a couple of years ago, they inked a deal with Netflix to produce so much original content. So I said, well, I got to see what this is about at least to see why they would have their hands in it. So took a little look. So it says, an award, well, first of all, this is by Sean Heasley, March 26, 2020. An award-winning documentary produced by former President Barack Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama centering on the origins of the disability rights movement is making its debut. Crip Camp, a disability revolution. Chronicles how in the early 70s, a summer camp for teenagers with disabilities brought together a group of people who would be pivotal in seeking civil rights protections for themselves and others like them. So it doesn't go into too much detail. It just kind of gives you a breakdown of what these stories are about. But it does say the documentary is one of seven projects that the Obamas announced last year that they would bring to Netflix as a part of a multi-year deal with the streaming service to produce films and series. The former president called the film a tribute to an extraordinary group of people who were speaking out in whatever uh, way that they could shape our country's course. Now, the good thing about this is if you watch the film or the documentary, it's more like a hippie town. And the hippies end up forming this camp where a lot of disabled students come, you know, from all walks of life to kind of just hang out and do their thing together. But the people who run this camp eventually become big leaders in the civil rights movement overall. 
So it's very interesting to see the connection between who might be some of your senators, some of your lawmakers, and who attended this camp or who were camp counselors smoking weed with the students back in these days. Because it's showing you all of that. It's not holding any of those, any of that back. Dropping tabs, mm-hmm. smoking weed, all of that was happening, sexual experiences. But mm-hmm. this is what people do. So why should they be left out of that, right? So I just found that interesting, very, very interesting piece. And I also found it interesting that they called it Crip Camp. I know a lot of people saw that and thought Snoop Dogg was going to be starring in it or something like that. But, right. oh, this ain't the case. Right. No, not at mm-hmm. all. So if you get a chance, if you still have Netflix, if you ain't canceled it yet because of the mm-hmm. agendas they be pushing, go check out mm-hmm. um, Crip Camp. See what you think about it. Okay. So that leads us into what we need to be right about now, which is, okay, now, what is happening? What game is over? You said the game is over. You press and reset. Well, yeah, we know the game is over. That that game ended on March 19th. But now it's time to press reset. We're starting to open back up. And this article, How to Reopen Schools, a 10-point plan putting equity at the center from April 29th, 2020. And it's from Getting Smart. And it starts off by saying, with nearly all U.S. school buildings closed for the year, teachers and leaders have scrambled to support remote learning and respond to the emerging needs of 57 million elementary and secondary students. As challenging as it is today, it is time to begin planning for next year. The damage the pandemic has already caused, its lingering health concerns, and the potential for resurgence make preparation to reopen a complex but urgent affair. So they say, based on insights and resources from practitioners and experts, they basically created this 10-point plan. And I'm going to outline some of the things that they have in here. Number one, they talk about organizing and mobilizing. So what they want to do here when they talk about organizing and mobilizing is just giving information to the people. Right? They want to educate them on how things are going to be. You have to start to let people know what things are going to be like before you start to actually implement them. So this is almost like a form of propaganda. I'm going to desensitize you to let you know what's coming up. Okay? Then you want to develop reopening scenarios because still they have no idea what it's going to look like. Some people coming, some people staying, um, half access and remote learning, half not. Some people are actually coming, but they're isolated. What is this going to look like? Okay. So one of the things that they see, and this was put together by AFT President Randy Weingarten and uh, Ed Trust CEO John King, who was our former uh, educational secretary. As a matter of fact, I think they both were educational secretaries for the United States at one point, the current position of Betsy DeVos, who we talked about last time we was on. But they talk about reopening in the fall on the regular schedule might be a bad idea, but these are the options they're considering. Opening earlier to more quickly address learning gaps. Opening early with safe precautions, as contemplated in California. Opening on time but ready to shift to remote learning in the event of a resurgence, what they're already talking about is going to come back in the fall and winter. Okay. See, that's another thing really quick. How do they already know it's going to be a resurgence in the fall and the winter? What is that going to look like? Because they're they planning it. Right. They're planning it. <laughs> they're putting it out there right now. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So next they're talking about opening on time, but with time shifted. So what does that mean? Learners on different schedules. 
are place-shifted approaches, some learners in temporary facilities and some learners remote, remote to support distancing. They're also going to talk about is keeping children in cohorts, which means keeping them in small groups with the same teacher throughout the day so they don't mix as much, closing down the playgrounds so you can't interact with each other. So it's getting real, real isolationist out there. And this is what they're talking about schools are going to look like when they open up. Playgrounds. And see, the, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, it, it just, that's just a lot of children, you know, they go to school to learn, but they need that socialization skills. That's, Thank it you. teach them that too. You know, and how you going to have, I saw a picture where, they had uh, a child sitting uh, inside of a box with like they drew with a piece of chalk, and each child yes. was sitting in that space. You know what kind of crap is that? You know they might, that's that's messing with their psychological. That's messing with them their psyche. You are see, saying like they teaching them to see like they teaching them to be autistic. You know, like you say, the person, right. the person, they don't want you to be close to them. They don't want you to be up on them, but they teaching them to stay away from people. That is an excellent assessment. And from what the, the data just showed us, this is mm-hmm. actually the making of a educational system that would fit perfectly for the students. We just, so you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. They don't care right. if they're around other students really or not. But that is crazy. Uh, what you're seeing is coming down, uh, markings on the floor and on the buildings to show where people should be standing and should not be standing, um, plexiglass between sinks in the bathroom, as well as plexiglass between desks, okay, just crazy stuff like this. Why would you even go to school? It's going to get to the point where if they do reopen them, once people go in there and they see the conditions, they're going to say, you know what, I'd rather be at home. If I got to deal with this, why would I keep coming? So, but it, it also seems like it. I didn't mean to cut you off, but it also seems like no, that no. they're making the grown-ups autism too, because they put they painting right. the floors in the stores, and you got to follow the area, and you can't. So it seems like they're trying to make the whole nation uh, artistic. There you go. That was actually perfect segue. Because if you see what's already happening out at banks, restaurants, grocery stores, you can get a glimpse of what's going to be happening in the schools pretty soon. Teachers and students wearing masks inside the classroom, plexiglass everywhere, like you said. Uh, follow these lines on the floor. On the floor, stand this far away from the next person. Um, and then number four, right here, staff and schedule for flexibility and differentiation. One thing they talk about in this section is actually keeping older staff at home. So it's like they're already trying to get rid of a lot of the uh, older staff, uh, either having them take an early retirement or just say, you know what, just don't come. So that's another thing we're seeing a lot of ages. Yeah, and the older and the older staff need the young people, and the young people need the right. older staff because a lot of the older staff. They're gonna hug the children. A lot of the children need that. They need that yes. that yes. hug. You don't know what they're going through at home, but now you know. And the older person, a lot of them are lonely. They family gone, and yes. so they they yes. need that that hug from that young person. Yes. So they taking all of that away. Right. 
and a lot of what we're seeing here is not going to be an illness, uh, a physical illness. It is going to be a mental and a social illness because, you know, we, we can't really see the effects. At least I have, and a lot of people around me have not been able to see the physical effects of the COVID-19, but we have definitely seen the psychological and social effects of it. I see that everywhere. And that's what it is. So, that's what it is. Right. That's what I believe. That's what it is. I agree with you 100%. Psychological, yeah. So if we think about anything in the future, and we think about this COVID-19, we have to look at it, like you said, as a psychological and social disease more than it really was any type of physical yeah. disease. So very, very, very yeah. interesting. That's, that's, how come the, that's how come the numbers are low. You know, they keep talking about we were supposed to have millions of people were supposed to die. It was never going to be exactly. millions of people die because exactly. this, this is what wasn't a physical disease. Right. Right. See, this is not Spanish flu or bubonic plague that has already wiped right. out like an entire population. Right. This is like right. that. We we do that from the very beginning. If it didn't do that in China when it first supposedly started, then why would it yeah. be all of a sudden not happening? Yeah. So but what is happening is there's going to be a generation of learners who are the, are going to suffer what they call the COVID-19 slide, which means if you were supposed to be learning Pivotal skills right about now, you're not going to get those. So graduation rates, standardized testing, all been suspended. Anything that was a measure of how well the education system was performing in the United States, all that has just been eradicated, literally. So if they were in trouble for not educating the students like we just saw last week, we saw that they got sued by Detroit, and Detroit sure did win. And it was perfect. They said, okay, now pull the plug. Yeah, you guys are right. We're not educating you. This is a whole education, but we're going to pull, pull the plug on it all right now. Exactly. Exactly. So this COVID-19 learning slide is real, and what we're about to get into is showing you. They are ready to pounce. Actually, they've already had it planned out, what it's going to look like, but you're going to see the evidence when we get to that little section. So definitely take a, a look at this article because you'll get to see exactly what the schools are going to look like once they possibly reopen. I do not see them reopening in the fall. Um, I don't see them reopening this year. This is my own predictions, just based on the information that I have available to me. Um, I don't see that happening until maybe 2021, if then. So just hold tight and, and keep listening, because we'll keep bringing you the information raw here on Sister Bev's Truth to Power show. So, like we've been talking about, what is being reset? What else is being reset? We see that the game is over. What else is being reset? Well, one thing is we talked about the ACT and the SAT, and I don't know if you've been keeping up with the news, Sister Beverly, but have you been seeing what's been going on with the SAT and the ACT? No, I haven't seen that part, what they've been doing. Oh, man. The UC system just last night voted to eradicate both the SAT and the ACT. And we talked about that exact thing happening two weeks ago on your show. We said it was too late. Mm -hmm. They had already mm -hmm. messed up. People weren't taking it because it was going to be given at home. They were talking about doing it remotely. That wasn't working out. Uh, they were really, really struggling. They were really, really struggling. And now we get the information that it was a wrap. But what I do want to do is I want to read this, this article real quick. 
that talks about uh, the, the efforts that the ACT was trying to put in right before they got the plug pulled on them last night. Okay. And this is called K-12 Dealmaking. ACT acquires personalized learning platform. Okay, actually that's it. And then the second part goes, Duolingo raises $10 million. So K-12 Dealmaking. ACT acquires personalized learning platform. Why would they do that? Let's see. Once again, this is from Ed Week, May 19th, and it says, even as the economic effects of coronavirus persist into a third month, investments continue to flow to education companies as a new learning environment is taking shape. Pressure reset. ACT acquires ScoopPad for an underclosed amount. The nonprofit learning management and navigation organization, ACT, has acquired ScoopPad a learning platform that aims to fulfill students' knowledge gaps and is assisting hundreds of thousands of K-8 students, according to a press release about the acquisition. In a statement to Ed Week Market Brief, ACT officials described the acquisition as a milestone for the organization that represents a strategic step forward to transform the ACT into a leading learning and learning analytics company with a proven adaptive learning platform. Now, let's pause for a second. Last time we were here, we said, okay, the SAT is a wrap, but something is is probably going to replace it. The ACT is a wrap, but what are they going to do? Here, we see exactly what the ACT, at least, is going to try to do. They're going to try to go from a test to what they say here, a learning platform that aims to fulfill students' knowledge gaps. Okay, and they do that by being a leading learning and learning analytics company. So what they're going to do is pretty much access data and provide data on student behavior in order to um, provide information for admissions. Now, at first, they would just give you the test, and you would go on about your business, and that would be your data. Now, we don't know what type of data they're going to be using. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to hold the surprise for the next article. I don't want to spoil the surprise just yet about what's coming. Let me continue with this article. Online and home-based education will remain a permanent part of the learning process, even after this crisis is over, ACT officials said. Now, this is what the ACT officials said. With ScoopPad, ACT is well-positioned to respond to current and future demand. To help schools cope with COVID-19 crisis, ScoopPad is offering free access to new customers and free subscription expansions current clients. I remember last time we told you, be very, very careful about signing up for anything free when you have to give them your credit card because you know you're not going to cancel by the expiration date and they're going to start charging you anyway. Also, your privacy concerns. We talked about that as well last time. So, this is a little thing that's coming down the pipeline. So, we said, ACT, you done. SAT, you done. But what are you guys about to do? As ACT said, well, we're going to turn into a learning analytics platform, and we're going to change our style up a little bit. And that brings us to today's decision. What is the SAT going to do? And that's what brings me to this article, which is entitled, UC Makes Landmark Decision to Drop the ACT and SAT Requirement for Admission. And this is from, I think this is from the LA Times, as a matter of fact, from May 21st, 2020. And before I get into this one, 
let's just take a trip down memory lane real quick. When we did uh, a show on testing, I forgot what that show was called, but we remember that the SAT and the ACT come straight out the eugenics movement anyway. The origins of both of these tests Mm -hmm. were the intelligence test or the IQ test, which was used to justify who should live and who should not. Which genetics should I pass on and which genetics should not be allowed to be passed on? It is used the same way today, and this is what we're seeing here. We're seeing a fight over whose genetics are going to get passed on because a lot of the fight that's going on over this uh, standardized test is about equity, and it's about black and brown children not being able to perform well while uh, uh, Asian children seem to perform well all the time, and why is that happening? Maybe we should just get rid of the test altogether and start something new. That's one way that they're approaching it. Another is, okay, they've identified that the ACT and the SAT is not doing exactly what we said it was going to do. We're using the information for other purposes, so let's try another way to get the same information. So that's the two approaches. One is a mainstream approach. One is an underground. And we're going to get into a little bit of this underground right about now. So let's get into this article real quick. It says, the action by the nation's premier public university system could mark a turning point in the long-running debate over whether the standardized tests unfairly discriminate against disadvantaged students or provide a useful tool to evaluate college applications. Some held the vote as a bold and visionary move to expand access to equity, but others expressed concern that dumping the test would lead to grade inflation admission of less prepared students, and backlash over different entry standards for different classes. The Lieutenant Governor, Eleni Kunalakis, ex, an ex-officio regent, called the vote the beginning of the end for the SAT. We really are the first body to tackle this head on and say enough is enough. And one more bird walk we got to take real quick. Um, I see this also as an extension of the college Admission scandal, okay? I don't know if anybody remembers that, with USC and uh, Penelope, uh, what's her name? Yeah. Felicity Huffman and all of these people getting rounded up by the FBI, okay? Yeah. A lot of it had to do yeah. with fake people taking the SAT, people going in there mm-hmm. under other people's names and taking the whole SAT without even being checked. How does this happen? That exposed everything, and then all of a sudden, SAT is bye-bye. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's continue. After conflicting presentations by experts and a lengthy debate, regents approved UC President Janet Napolitano's five-year plan to ease out the SAT and ACT test. And this is time for your tears. And develop the university system's own assessment. Just when we thought we was out in the clear. Just when we thought we had gotten rid of the standardized test because the ACT and the SAT is gone, we find out this, that they only boot those two so they can make their own. Wow. Wow. But let's continue. You we going to say something, Sister Bill? Um, to me, it just seemed like testing is set up to – Control and discriminate anyway. You know, why can't anybody go to school? You know, why is it that you get to pick and choose who can go? So 
I don't like the testing at all. That That's a good point, a very, very good point. And I will bring this up. In studying tests and test development, one thing I can say is the tests themselves are not biased. They do a good job of what, exactly what they've been made to do, and you said it clearly, to discriminate who should mm-hmm. and who shouldn't get in. They do an excellent job of that. The problem is who is using them and how they're using them. The how they do doing it, okay. Do, right? Right. But then you have it in the hands of certain people who use it as a tool for discrimination and for filtering genetics. We have to look at it like that because if we don't look at it like mm-hmm. that, we're missing the whole point. The point is to filter certain genetics out, okay? So excellent point. But now there's other opponents to this. UC Riverside Chancellor Kim Wilcox says his campus, the most diverse in the UC system after Merced, polls using the current admission process, winning top rankings for helping low-income, first-generation, and underrepresented students succeed. So he says just keep the regular um, process. We're doing fine. We're the second most diverse UC behind UC Merced in Riverside, and we're not having a problem. So some people say keep it. UC's decision to require the SAT half a century ago catapulted the test to a place of national prominence, and its threat to drop it in the early 90s prompted the college board to revise it. Hmm, just that two, actually that just that one sentence right there should say so much. If it was the UC's decision to require the SAT 50 years ago that catapulted it into national prominence, and then for them to threaten to drop it in the early 90s and then the college board to revise it means that the UC system has been manipulating the standardized testing field for quite some time at least 50 years ago from what they're saying right here. So they've always been working hand-in-hand. Hand. It sounds like they try to cut the cords, but it sounds like they just go on a different way about doing the same thing. Okay, let's continue. Critics say the SAT and ACT are heavily influenced by race, income, and parental education levels. Question the exam's value in predicting college success and express concern about inequitable access to test prep. Those concerns have prompted more than 1,000 colleges and universities to drop the testing requirement. And also, a lawsuit against the UC system also calls for the requirement to be dropped. Several regions praised Napolitano for striking a compromise between the two factions. She did an excellent job threading the needle, said Vice Chair Cecilia Estelano, who called the SAT a racist test. She just straight up called it what it was. Okay. Eddie Camo, a UC Riverside professor who heads the Senate's Committee on Admission Standards and co-chair of the Testing Task Force, said politics and public perceptions more than data appear to drive the decision to a preordained conclusion. Isn't that what they do anyway? They have a conclusion that they want, and then they find the data that they need to justify that conclusion. Same thing happened here. Okay. UC experts will launch a feasibility study this summer to identify a new test that assesses what the university expects students to master to demonstrate readiness for a college. And that's the end of that article. But I was also reading another article last night that kind of went a little deeper into what their test that they're developing is going to look like. And what they're saying is it's going to be based on a total simulation. 
What does that mean? We've talked about a simulation on the show before. We talked about game theory, and that's what it is. Putting them in various situations that are virtual, seeing how they respond, and they feel like that will give them much more information, which it will, about who has what types of skills. So you're not going to be answering multiple choice questions. You can forget about filling the blank. No, but you might want to get ready to put your VR headset on and go into a room with a bunch of sensors and just be reacting to some stuff um, that you don't even know what's about to happen. So that's what it sounded like it's about to look like in the future. They're talking about five years. We just heard them say they got a five-year plan. If they have a new test by five years, they're going to use that. If not, supposedly they're going to do away with it. So we'll keep our eyes peeled, and we'll see what happens. And this is probably the last is this the last education update article? Yep. It's the last education update article I want to get into really quick because it just hammers home what we've been talking about. And the, uh, the title for this is Chegg CEO bets on the inevitable shift to digital learning amid the coronavirus. And this is from Yahoo Finance, May 7, 2020. Now, for those uh, of us who do not know, Chegg is an institution uh, of education, digital institution, that provides books, tutoring, and extra support for any type of academic area, and it's all digital. So their CEO, um, I want to say that maybe about a week or so ago when they reported results, went through the roof. So if you had invested in Chegg maybe two weeks ago, by the following week, you were up 30%, which is a significant amount when you're dealing with stocks. So if you can see where the trends are going, always follow the money. And you'll see if you bet on Chegg a couple of weeks ago, you hit it. So what is he talking about? He says he's betting on the inevitable shift to digital learning. What you mean? So let's see. He says the, the nation's largest urban school districts are warning that without federal aid, as many as 275,000 teachers could suffer layoffs. Universities like Harvard are freezing or cutting salaries. Digital educational companies are stepping into the gap, capitalizing on the need for not just learning material, but teaching assistance for students amidst the coronavirus pandemic. We're betting on the inevitable. Dan Rawson-Zweig, the CEO of online education company Chegg, told Yahoo Finance, what this means is schools are going to be able to offer less support. Students are going to be more on their own. And so what comes out of this and on the other side is more people learning more things online and needing more online support. Okay? And I'm going to skip through some stuff, but I want to hit this last little piece home. He says, online tools are a part of the way children are growing up today. They have technology available to them from two years old that you and I never had when we were that young. So they learned to retain it in that type of environment. So just that right there, they're letting us know that this is not going to be some flash in the pan. This is what they've been telling us is going to be all along. This is permanent. Okay? This is what the future of learning is going to look like. And I also must say, all bad. As you can see in Jedi Learning, we have started to implement that type of strategy at least five years ago because we see through the evidence and through, you know, the things that were going on uh, in our larger social cultural environment that this was going to be the way to go for learning. So 
that is the game over. That is the end of one era and the ushering in of another. That spring has ended and brought about a new, fresh set of blades of grass, birds, and bees. And with that, all that going on around us, I want to do a little exercise before we get into our next part. And it's the perfect time because we're about halfway. So I'm going to do a little mm-hmm. exercise. Actually, this is going to be some hekau. This is going to be some magic. And anybody who's out there, um, if you're willing to participate, please do so. It only takes less than five minutes, but it will reap significant benefits before we go into this next level. So get comfortable. Find a spot where you can just kind of relax. You can breathe normally. You can be yourself. You ain't got to worry about anybody being around you if you don't want to. And I want everybody to just lay back for a second. Start to rhythmically breathe into your nose, not through your mouth. And I want you to continue to do that about two or three more times. In through the nose, now through the mouth. And while you're doing that, obviously, it's activating certain nerves that are allowing you to relax. And as you get into this relaxation state, it's going to allow you to visualize a lot better what I want you to do as you continue to breathe in through your nose, out through your mouth, is begin to visualize from your third eye a white glowing ball of light start to emanate from your forehead. It starts to grow every time you take a deep breath in and let it out. It's like you're blowing a bubble as it encompasses your head. That light then starts to encompass your torso, your lower body, down past your knees as you continue to breathe in through the nose, out through the mouth. It then encompasses your feet and it makes a bubble around you. This is your bubble of protection. This is your bubble of banishing. Any evil spirits, anything that will thwart the efforts that you're going to put out in the air right now are being banished every time you breathe in and blow out and your bubble expands. Stretch that bubble as far as you can to whatever you want it to encompass to be with inside of this magic bubble. Whether it be your house, your neighborhood, or just you, maybe even your family. But continue to breathe in through the nose and out through the mouth. Now, as this bubble begins to elevate you, you begin to look down, and that what you see as you are elevated, lush green grasses, beautiful clouds, blue skies, and below, beautiful black bodies, hustling, bustling, busy marketplaces, people splashing on the coast in the water having fun, having a good time. You smell great food. You can smell some barbecue, charred. You can smell those fresh vegetables cooking. You hear laughing, children, old women, men, playing games without a care in the world. And every time you look around you, you see somebody that looks, sounds, and is you. As you continue to breathe into the nose and out the mouth, 
This is your utopian society. This is what you have built with your imagination. Everybody who is listening right now, unless a little bit different, can be accomplished. As we continue to breathe and expand our bubbles of protection, we are literally inventing our future. And from the words that I speak that resonate throughout the ears and the hearts of those who receive it, you all see the vision. You all know this can be done because you can currently see it there before you. This is all it takes. This is your new game. This is your future. This is your utopia. My land. And I want everybody out there who can hear, just repeat, our land. Our land. Exhale. Our land. Breathe in. Exhale with an our land and fill it. Our land. Breathe in through the nose, out through the mouth. Our land. Our land. And you own it. Now I want you to begin. Anytime you inhale, to bring that bubble back in. Continue to visualize, continue to see. Continue to bring the chant Continue to Repeat what we see Which is our land As our bubbles retract We come back to where we are Slowly the bubble Gets smaller and smaller Until it's right above our forehead again We continue to breathe Continue to visualize Even as that little bubble Retracts and goes back into your pineal gland. You have implanted a seed of your land. It is now time to slowly, whenever you're ready, open your eyes, regain control of all your faculties, and ground yourself in the here and now. Now, what we just did was we went to our land. We built it. We envisioned it. We smelt it. We touched it. We heard it. This is the thing that you have to do to make it real. This is only the beginning steps, but this is a necessary step. We talked earlier about the only things that are real in this world are things that have come from the human imagination, whether it be the pyramids in Kemet or whether it be the Eiffel Tower. It was always somebody's imagination prior to it becoming something in the three-dimensional environment, and we have just made ours. Now we are ready to receive information about where we're going now. Now we're ready to take this information and actually put it into action. You have participated in one of the most beautiful Hekau rituals, which is just a simple guided meditation allowing you to visualize what you want to see in your future. So I hope we didn't take too much time, but I hope people enjoyed that and actually were able to participate fully in that activity. Because the more that they did, the more real it becomes. It's as simple as that. And as we move on into this next part, the first thing I want to start with, do you have a question, Sister Bill? No, I'm just relaxed. Okay. (laughs) 
Okay, yes, that's right. <laughs> it, it will do that too. It definitely will. Uh, that deep breathing activates that vagus nerve, and the first thing that starts to happen is those eyelids get droopy. So I definitely understand. But this is good because in a relaxed state, you can take in information and visualize that much better. So the first article I want to get into as we start to deal with these various utopian societies, we want to talk about them but also learn from them, learn what we must implement, learn what we have to do within society, and not be scared. There's nothing to be afraid of. That is the whole point. You have to get rid of fear. you got to go see the movie After Earth with Will Smith and his son, Jade Smith, because the whole point I of that love movie that movie. Living. Oh, so you know about that. that. Was a, many that people was, know about that. That movie was a deep movie. Yeah, right. that was a deep movie. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely one of my favorites. Uh, for those yeah. of the people out there who don't know, um, that movie was written by and directed by M. Night Shyamalan, who also did The Sixth Sense. But in it, the last two people on planet Earth were black people, Will Smith and his son. And literally, they had to save the entire planet. But the point of the movie was he had to avoid these uh, creatures that would come in and literally just annihilate people. But those people, uh, those creatures could not annihilate you if you had no fear. They could only see you if you were fearful. Outside of that, they were blind. They could, not, they could smell you, touch you, or anything. So Will Smith had to teach his son how to do what's called ghosting, become a spirit, go into the spirit world. When you have no fear of anything, when you realize your real God self, and that allows you to surpass any of your worst fears. It was, it's an excellent movie. I definitely recommend people go check that out. And it has a glowing recommendation by Sister Beth, so definitely go get that. Oh, yeah. And I, and I noticed that a lot of the critics didn't like it. And I was like, exactly. oh, let me look at this movie because uh, they, you know, they was. Uh, making people not go towards it. They were saying that when I looked at it, I was like, oh, you don't like this movie. You straight up hater. You right. don't want the message to get out. <laughs> <laughs> That's right on point. Because, yeah, you're right. The critics tore it up. Nobody wanted to yep. go see it. The uh, the sales were down. And after seeing it, I, I was puzzled. I didn't really yeah. understand at that time the, the politics of the whole situation. Right. But I was like, well, what is the problem here? That's why. Because mm-hmm. the secret's in mm-hmm. there that you're not going to yes, get nowhere else. So, yep. so make sure you go see that. And make sure you have your third eye is open when you're seeing it, definitely. What we're going to go right now is to the state of Oregon, on the west coast of the United States, where one of our favorite utopian societies was developed. And, again, we have to go back to Netflix because this is where I found out about this particular society. If you have Netflix again, you have to watch the documentary. It's like a six-part series called Wild, Wild Country. I'm going to give you a synopsis. Essentially, there are some neighbors in Oregon who are having a disagreement. What these neighbors decide to do are one side of the neighbors decide that they want to get people in office to help pass some of the laws that allow them to live the utopian society that they like. So they start to do it. They start to get a little bit of momentum, and then they bring the spiritual guru in from India. He starts attracting a big following, and what they end up doing is opening up their doors to a lot of homeless 
and other uh, people that have been thrown away. And that helps to start this community. And it literally shows you step by step how a community can be built just off certain ideals. Literally, it starts off with a disagreement between two neighbors and ends up in literally an entire community, a, a whole society, as a matter of fact, with its own police force, with its own stores, with its own businesses, with its own uh, spiritual center. Literally, everything that you would need to function, you would not have to leave that particular compound in order to live your life, okay? That's how, uh, that's how I saw it. Obviously, there are some things that happen in there that some people are going to be uncomfortable with. But when you've seen these types of things over and over and over again, you can start to weed out what is the propaganda and what they don't really want you to know, which is the main thing. You can start your own society. That's the bottom line. Okay? But let me get into this article called Cult or Cultural Utopia. The directors of Wild Wild Country let the viewers decide. Okay. The story, as told in the documentary, began small as a feud between neighbors. However, quickly grew into a much larger conflict with serious consequences. Basically, what ends up happening is this. The Rajneeshis and Rajneeshis are basically the people who follow uh, this particular character whose name is Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. Okay, he is the Indian guru that they end up following. Okay. Basically, what ends up happening is the Rajneeshis end up busing in over 5,000 homeless people to live on a ranch and vote for their own Rajneesh Purim candidate, which really creates a huge mess in the state of Oregon, Chapman explained. They end up poisoning the entire local town of the Dallas, uh, of the Dales. Sorry, over 750 people were poisoned with salmonella in an effort to prevent them from voting on election day, so that they could win the the county election. That's what the story is most remembered for. And I would agree, that is what the story is most remembered for. And they do make that the climax. But I would really, really urge people. To do not make that the focal point if you do go look at this series because there's so much more to it that you can see if you're not strictly focused on that one particular incident. Remember, focus on building and what they use to build. And you need to filter out anything that you don't feel is useful to you. Okay. So as we continue, the filmmakers endeavor to address the establishment clause and freedom of religion throughout the story. What draws the, vi- the viewer and as a cult film becomes a broader exploration of cultural misunderstanding and the aggression that results. I think that we're able to do a little bit differently as we've seen a lot of cult movies and stories too, and documentaries which is a little bit more focused on why people join cults. How do people fall into this, Chapman said. We weren't necessarily interested in exploring the brainwash elements because when we met these people, none of these people thought they were brainwashed. They were all very successful, very intelligent. I want to hit that part home because a lot of times people think if somebody starts a a new society to be some type of cult leader that they're following, that's going to make us drink some Kool-Aid and and all commit suicide. No, that is not the case. Oftentimes, a lot of these societies are started by a bunch of very, very intelligent people who do not want to live under the guise of what we call a government, or at least the current government. 
So they they obviously have the means and the skills to start their own. So, you know, just a bunch of bums on their own would have a very, very difficult time doing that. They may be able to live, but an actual, to establish a society would be extremely different. Okay, let's continue. I think the next big question for us was what their intent was. I think they had really interesting, fascinating answers about their ambitions and what they thought they were doing. Not just that there's one overbearing leader that people are falling into this trap, but more. What's the plan here? What's the dream? Okay. So uh, the story takes on a twist when one of his understudies, who was a female, uh, begins to kind of take hold of the uh, society, and she literally does whatever it takes to keep her society going. Now, a lot of times people look at this in a negative way and say, she's conniving, she's spiteful, she's backbiting. What I saw was somebody who was extremely dedicated to their society, who was extremely dedicated to their people and was willing to go through any length or measure to make sure that they uh, continued on, just like a lot of people will go through extreme lengths to get us out the way so they can continue to live that they, like they want to, okay? So we have to look at this in a bigger, bigger scope, especially if you take a, uh, get a chance to watch this. So let's go into Ma'anan Shima. The central figure of the story in film is Ma'anan Shima, secretary to Rajneesh and leader of the bioterror attack. Shima became the most controversial figure in Rajneesh Parm. Wild Wild Country opens with a nearly folkloric account of Sheila's role in the community. When she herself is finally introduced, it feels as if a guest celebrity has arrived, despite having only minutes before learned of her existence. They go, as soon as we reached out to Sheila, she was really thoughtful, really intelligent, really powerful, strong female voice type of character. Talking to her, we realize that she never really feels like she's been given a platform to explain her version of what happened. So what I do like about it is it says the six-hour series explores everything that happened from both perspectives. But what it does not do is prescribe a verdict. That is for the viewers to decide. So what I would recommend for everybody who has an ability to, if you got Netflix, go look at Wild Wild Country and look at how they developed their society. First, they found a spot. They purchased a little bit of land. Then they said, you know, we have to have some type of income. So they started little businesses, local businesses, with the people that were just within the compound. They started running those businesses, started making a little bit of money. They started using that money to then run some of their own candidates for the local office. And since it's only like, you know, one or two people running against them, once they got enough people, they were able to put their people into office, then vote in their own police chief, start their own protection. So they had their own police force. They were, already had their farm going. They already had their businesses going. They educated their own. They were able to even bring people in literally off the streets to provide them with sustenance if they wanted to live by the certain um, guidelines that were set forth in that particular uh, society. So, and this is another thing that we have to look at. Do you notice that every time that a new either spiritual system or a new community is started, a lot of times it starts with those that have been thrown away. If you look at Malcolm X, if you look at Clarence 13th X, 
If you look at Elijah Muhammad, who did they talk to? Who did they get uh, to start their movement? It was either brothers in jail or brothers out there hanging on the street corner because those are the people who are looking for answers. The lost brothers, the lost brothers, uh, the thugs in disguise, okay? They might look like a thug, but really they just lost and they're looking for some direction. Thing here, if you can provide for your people, you are not going to have a problem attracting them. The problem is making sure that you're able to provide for them in the first place. So I really, really like that and, documentary. No, go ahead. Yeah, and I th- and I um I think that's an example of what the president, if you like him or don't like him, it seems like th- those are the populations that he geared towards. You know, the manufacturing right. people, the the you know the I lower see. class, the middle class. And those yeah. is who he gravitate to, you know. He Absolutely. he deals with the the upper, you know, class, but most of them stay in the upper class and they look down on the lower class. But he seems to want to elevate and bring the lower class, at least let them have a better way of life. And and as you right. described how how they created their own uh, utopian. That sounds just like how they did back in the West. You know, they they got a spot and they started a little town. You know, it seemed like they did it the same way. (laughs) The the exact same way. You know, you are just making the gospel. Look at the United States of America. I know we mentioned this last time, but how do you think it started? Do you think it was always 50 states? In a couple of nope. territories, no. Supposedly, they escaped from Britain, wanted to start their own society, and came on over here on boats and, and ended up almost yep. dying. Okay? Yeah. That's the story. I don't know if I believe that, you know, 13 people barefooted with shotguns was able to fight off the whole British Army, but, you know, that's just me. <laughs> but still, mm-hmm. that is the story. That's the story we're being told. So if it can start this, imagine what you could start. With your DNA. Right. Let's imagine. So this takes us into another one. This is Walden. Uh, many people may not have heard of Walden, but it's by a transcendental philosopher by the name of um, Thoreau, Henry David Thoreau. Now, when I say transcendentalism, we keep hearing transcendence, transcendental, trans. To move beyond, basically. So essentially, around the 1400s, 1500s, when a lot of the medieval philosophers started to get a lot of the information from the Moors that they had got from Kemet and the various places they had traveled, they had a re-enlightenment. So they started to study what they called transcendentalism, going beyond the physical. Literally, they were just studying your old Kemetic sciences. Okay, that, that's essentially what it was. Your old Vodun sciences, your old Yoruba sciences. That's all they study. So in doing so, they started to see another way of life. So they said, hmm, do I necessarily have to live under this United States Constitution? Is there another way to live? So Henry David Thoreau said, I'm going to go live in this utopian society called Walden. And I'm going to give people a little breakdown of what Walden was like really quick. So if you just go to Wikipedia and just look up Walden, you'll find this. First published in 1854, Walden details the Rose experiences over the course of two years, two months, and two days in a cabin he built near Walden Pond 
amidst woodland owned by his friend and mentor, Ralph Waldo Emerson, near Concord, Massachusetts. Thoreau used this time to write his first book. The experience later inspired Walden, in which Thoreau compresses the time into a single calendar year and uses passages of the four seasons to symbolize human development. Okay? So let's get to the plot real quick. What is this about? It says, and this is a quote from him, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life, and see if I could not learn what it had to teach, and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. I did not wish to live what was not life. Living is so dear, nor did I wish to practice resignation unless it was quite necessary. I wanted to live deep and suck out all the marrow of life, to live so sturdily and spartan-like as to put route, uh, as to route all that was not life, to cut a broad swath and shave close, to drive life into a corner and reduce it to its lowest terms, and prove to be me, why then? to get the whole and genuine meanness of it and publish its meanness to the world. Or, if it were sublime, to know it by experience and be able to give it a true account in my next excursion. So, part memoir and part spiritual quest, Walden opens with the announcement that Thoreau spent two years at Walden Pond living a simple life without support of any kind. Readers are reminded that at the time of publication, Thoreau is back living uh, among the civilized again. The book is separated into specific chapters, each of which focuses on specific themes. So he has, obviously, economy. He goes over where I lived and what I lived for. Reading, sound, solitude, visitors. All of these are various chapters in the book, and they talk about what this society looks like and how it acts according to these things. Um, I do find this one little part pretty interesting. Uh, when he talks about reading, it says, Thoreau discusses the benefits of classical literature, preferably the original Greek and Latin, and bemoans the lack of sophistication in Concord evident in the popularity of unsophisticated literature. He also loved to read books by world travelers. He yearns for a time when each New England village supports wise men to educate and thereby ennoble the population. What I find interesting about that is he still goes back to Greek and Latin. This is why I always go back to Nubia and Kemet. As you can see, the West philosophers and psychologists, learned men, they know where their origins are, at least for their philosophies. And for us to be able to go back, retrieve what has been lost, and use that in the development of the new societies is absolutely necessary. It does not have to be a rehashing of those old societies because obviously that would not work. It has to be adapted to current days, but you have to use some of those elements because they have already proven to work. Okay, so that was Walden. Is, is that why other society uses uses our, um, you know, like ISIS and. You know, they, right. they use all the, you know. Right. They, they're basically using that spiritual energy to prop themselves mm-hmm. up. If it, it really hits home. If you listen to the 
old uh, nursery rhyme, which is really not a damn nursery rhyme. London. No, Bell. Yeah. <laughs> right. We did talk about that before. <laughs> it is an absolute spell. It is actually a ritual. What London Bridge yes, is actually is. talking about is talking about burying a body beneath a bridge because burying a body beneath a bridge symbolized a strong foundation because that sacrificed body would lend support to whatever was on top of it, what London Bridges is about. Okay, mm-hmm. So I say that to say they are very, very keen about spiritual areas and how to mm-hmm. build and use them. Mount Rushmore is built on a sacred uh, Native American uh, site. Um, what was this? It was Rocket Dine is built on top of a sacred um, Native American site. Rocket Dine is a rocket launching place out here in uh, California. So mm-hmm. they use that spiritual energy. That's why you have tech news in Washington, D.C., which you call the Washington Monument. All of these are all yours. These are all your symbols, okay? And yeah. Sciences. But th- that, that's how it works. So you have to be able to use your own symbols and sciences for the same means, okay? So here we go. Excellent point. Excellent point. So that was Walden, okay? After Walden, and even though there was a video game called Walden, as a matter of fact, we might find this interesting just because um, we talked about video games not too long ago. It goes like this. The National Endowment for Arts in 2012 bestowed, bestowed Tracy Fullerton, a game designer and professor at the University of Southern California's Game Innovation Lab, with a $40,000 grant to create, based on the book, a first-person open-world video game called Walden, in which players inhabit an open three-dimensional game world, which will simulate the geography and environment of Walden Woods. The game production was also supported by grants from the National Endowment for the Humanities and was part of the Sundance New Frontier Story Lab in 2014. The game was released to critical acclaim on July 4, 2017, celebrating both the day that Thoreau went down to the pond to begin his experiment and the 200th anniversary of his birth. It was nominated for the Off-Broadway Award for Best Indie Game at the New York Game Awards in 2018. So, even this particular utopian society was so popular, they even turned it into a video. Okay? There is no reason why we shouldn't be able to mesh. Just imagine, whatever you saw in your meditation, if you were able to make a video game out of it, and then have your children and your grandchildren and their children playing it, so that they grew up idolizing this place that you made for them, that they now take over and that they now run. That's what just happened with Walden. Now, it didn't stop there. There was also a Walden 2 that came out. Now, this is where I got introduced to the whole Walden series. As I was studying behavior analysis, which is one of the most effective treatments for individuals with autism, I came across B.S. Skinner and his book, Walden 2, which I had to read for some of my studies. And I was absolutely fascinated by it because what they did was they started a uh, uh, utopian society based on strictly the science of human behavior. And what I saw in a lot of it was, once again, a lot of our 
ancient natural practices. I'm going to get into some of those as I go over to uh, this article, which is also from Wikipedia, and just put in Walden 2. I'm going to read uh, a little bit about it to you. Okay? Walden 2 is a utopian novel written by behavioral psychologist B.F. Skinner, first published in 1948. In its time, it could have been considered science fiction since science-based methods for altering people's behavior did not yet exist. I don't agree with that, but that's what they say here. Such methods are now known as behavior analysis. Walden II is controversial because its characters speak of a rejection of free will, including a rejection of the preposition that human behavior is controlled by a non-corporeal entity such as a spirit or soul. Walden II embraces the preposition that the behavior of organisms, including humans, is determined by environmental variables, and that systematically altering environmental variables can generate a sociocultural system that very closely approximates utopia. Now, after just reading that, what does that sound like to you, Sister Beverly Dean? To me, sure. it sounds like – go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, but to me, it sounds like what we're dealing with today, mm-hmm. right? Because once again, it's talking about changing the environmental variables that then change people's behavior based on the data yeah. that you get from them, okay? So that's what I see, um, and I think a lot of what's going on right now is related straight back to this particular book. But let's go ahead and continue. It introduces kind of the characters first, and then it goes into this. It says, and actually I'll read that part so we're all caught up, the synopsis. The first person narrator and protagonist, Burris, is a university instructor of psychology who was approached by two young men sometime in the late 1940s. The young men are recent veterans of World War II and intrigued by utopianism, sound like me, expressed interest in an old acquaintance of Burris named T.E. Frazier, who in the 1930s started an intentional community that still thrives. Now, this is all in the book. Okay. As I skip down, as Burris and other visitors tour the ground, they discover that certain radically unusual customs have been established in Walden II. Quite bizarre to the American mainstream, but showing apparent success in the long run. Okay, what are some of those customs? Some of these customs include that children are raised communally. Now, what does that mean, children are raised communally? Since I read the book, I remember the children were not supposed to spend uh, more time with their parents than they were able to spend with everybody else together. They could spend just as much time with their parents that, but they had to share that time with at least somebody else that was an adult in a particular community. Now, when I think about that, it sounds like it takes a village to raise a child where yeah, everybody's exactly. responsible for the children. You don't have to worry about getting a whooping from me for doing something crazy because um, Mrs. Ofua down the street is going to pop you upside the head if she sees you doing something that you're not supposed to be doing. Okay. So that's what that sounded like to me. But then it keeps going. Families are non-nuclear. Same thing, right? You have a village. Not necessarily just a family. And sometimes um, you had more than one partner in those types of families. Oh, and guess what? The very next thing says, free affection is the norm. 
which means that there were not necessarily any boyfriends or girlfriends unless you wanted to be that way, but only arrangements that helped you further the community. Okay? This is what I thought was interesting, though. Personal expressions of thanks were taboo. We're not going to get too deep into that right now. But such behavior is mandated by the community's individually self-enforced Walden Code, a guideline for self-control techniques, which encourages members to credit all individual and other achievements to the larger community while requiring minimal strain. Community counselors are also available to, to supervise behavior and assist members with better understanding and following the code. Now, for a lot of people, they get frightened by a lot of this type of talk. When you get into self-control, when you get into control techniques, and you get into supervision and codes and following codes, but you have to remember, you're following a code right now of some sort. All behavior you do is part of some code, whether you know it expressly or not. So to say that I don't want to live in a code just means that you don't want to have knowledge that the program is going on. If the program goes on outside of your awareness, you're okay with that. But if you know the program is going on, you have a problem with that. That's something that we have to do away with, especially if we want to start intentional communities, because you're going to have to set up things so that they operate for you uh, in the best benefit of you and your group. So that is going to take some intentional planning, period. People have to get over that. Okay? But let's continue. And it goes on into Thoreau's Walden and their relationships. So I'm just going to read to you really quick how they kind of link up. Walden II's title is a direct reference to Henry David Thoreau's book, Walden. In the novel, the Walden II community is mentioned as having the benefits of living in a place like Thoreau's Walden, but with company. It is, as the book says, Walden for two, meaning a place for achieving personal self-actualization but within a vibrant community rather than a place of solitude. Originally, Skinner in, indicated that he wanted to title it, The Sun is But a Morning Star, a quote of the last sentence of the Rose Walden, but the publishers suggested something else. Now, the main two differences between Walden and Walden II were, one, the virtues of self-reliance at the community level existed in Walden II, and then Skinner's underlying premise that free will of the individual is weak compared to how environmental conditions shape behavior was a second difference. Thoreau didn't necessarily share those same sentiments. Now, didn't you just say earlier, Sister Bev, everybody's paradise and utopia is going to look different? Right. That's a perfect example. These two people have been influenced by the same elders, as well as each other, and it still looks a little bit different. But it didn't stop there. Other people attempted to uh, recreate both Walden and Walden too, and they have a list of them. I can see about 10 of them right here. So I'm going to read off to people. Some of these efforts include 1955 in New Haven, Connecticut, a group led by Arthur Gladstone tries to start a community. 1966, Walden Woods Conference is held in Heartland, Michigan, comprising 83 adults and 40 children. I'm sorry, and four children, coordinated through Bre the Breland List, a list of interested people who wrote to Skinner and were referred uh, to Jim Breland. 1966, Matthew Israel forms the Association for Social Design to promote a Walden II, 
which soon finds chapters in Los Angeles, Albuquerque, and Washington, D.C. 1967, Israel's ASD forms the Morning House, Morningside House in Arlington, Massachusetts. Some Israelis came down um, from Israel to Arlington, Massachusetts, just so they can start an association for social design. It's 1967, Twin Oaks Community started in Louisa County, Virginia. 1969, Keith Miller founds a Walden House. So you can just see, people are not stopping trying to create intentional communities. So we might think of it as something that pops up once every 100 years or so. No, this is constantly going on. Okay. Look at the Amish. Go ahead. I say, look at the Amish people. Right, right. That's an excellent point. I would say even the Amish and the Mormons, both of them. Yeah, the Mormons too. Right. Yeah. They they live a totally different lifestyle than we used to, so we wouldn't even know how to survive probably if we went on like Amish uh, farm or something like that. Walden Seven, a 1,000 inhabited community west of Barcelona, Spain, is created as a social and architectural experiment based on Walden Two, living in a building designed by Catalan architect Ricardo Bofill. Three more. No, four more. Roger Ulrich in 1971 starts an experimental community named Lake Village in Kalamazoo, Michigan. 1971, Los Horcones is started in Hermosillo, Mexico. So it's not even in the United States. They all the way in Israel. They out there in Spain. They out there in Mexico. So who's to say we got to stay in the United States? Right, the other places we can go, and we're going to talk about those in a second. We're going to talk about Jamaica. We're going to talk about West Coast of Africa. Just hold on. 1972, Sunflower House 11 is reborn in Lawrence, Kansas from the previous experiment, so they resurrected one. And then last, 1973, East Wind is started in south-central Missouri. Okay. So I'm going to go ahead and leave Walden 2 right there, but I just wanted to give you a little idea about how often <laughs> intentional societies are started. It is not like Every once in a while, somebody decides and just gets the right mix of people. No, you have to literally sit down, get your group together, plan it out, and start taking action, okay? So what I want to do now is leave those particular um, utopian societies and then go to some more of our utopian societies. Last week, we uh, dug into the depths of African civilization our destruction of African civilization by Chancellor Williams. And he gave us a few African communities, like the Kuba people, the people who lived in Meroway, the people who lived in uh, the Luda people, Lunda people. So he gave us a lot of different African communities that had been started. Very, very successful. Today we're going to go over some African communities that are more recent. Okay, A lot of people out there might have heard about them. And one I really have to start off with because it made a big impact. Oh, go ahead. You about to say something? No, I was just going to say that uh, we have like 15 minutes left, and mm. if someone wanted to call in and ask a question or have a comment, and we can uh, always uh, continue this. But you, uh, for those that are listening on the Internet, t- call in, and you can hear on the telephone, and the phone number is 323 323- uh, six four two one five eight six 
and push the number one. And you do have some callers. Oh, excellent. Um, hmm. Should we you want to finish what you are getting ready to? Yeah, go ahead yeah, and this, finish this what you're <laughs> Okay. Okay, okay. I'm, I'm going to jump into this real quick, and then, then we're going to uh, open the phone lines up. Okay. okay. Some people out there might know of a man, a brilliant man, brilliant ancestor by the name of Gaspar Younger. As a matter of fact, D. Smoke from Inglewood and Sir. Oh, no, actually, I want to say in Snoop Dogg just came out with a song called Gaspar Younger. Um, after watching the video, I wasn't too sure what it had to do with Gaspar, but I'm glad they at least put his name in there because I hope it had some of our young, especially young men, look up this brilliant, brilliant man. He's a god now, as a matter of fact. We can go ahead and say that. Um, just like the Orishas and the Netchers, if you were on a certain level, when you made the transition, you transitioned to God level, and I would say he did that. Now, Gaspar Yanga, often simply Yanga or Nyanga, was an African known for being the leader of a maroon colony in the highlands near Veracruz, Mexico, during the early, early period of Spanish rule. He is known for successfully resisting a Spanish attack on the colony in 1609. The maroons continued their raids on Spanish settlements. And finally, in 1618, he achieved an agreement with the colonial government for self-rule of the Maroon settlement. It was later called San Lorenzo de los Negros and also San Lorenzo de Cerralvo. Okay? So, let's get into a little bit of the uh, community he started. In the late 19th century, Yanga was named as a national hero of Mexico and El Primer Libertador de las Americas. In 1932, the settlement he formed, located in today's Veracruz province, was renamed as Yanga in his honor. So uh, if you ever get a chance to go to Veracruz, Mexico, go visit Yanga. You never know what spiritual energy you can go get from that. Okay, But I'm going to continue really quick. Yanga was said to be of the Bron people and a member of the royal family of Gabon which is on the west coast of Africa. He was captured and sold into slavery in Mexico where he was called Gaspar. Before the end of the slave trade, New Spain had the fifth highest slave population of the Americas after Brazil. The Caribbean, Cuba, and Hispaniola, where unpaid labor is still a practice in Haiti. And uh, it also developed a free, back, free black population. Around 1570, Yanga led a band of Africans in escape into the highlands near Veracruz. They built a small maroon colony, Arpalique, Utopian Society. Its isolation helped protect it for more than 30 years, and other fugitive slaves found their way there, or should I say fugitive Africans. Because the people survived in part by raiding caravans and taking goods along the Camino Real between Veracruz and Mexico City, in 1609, the Spanish colonial government decided to undertake a campaign to regain control of the territory. And we just read how that went. They lost, and in 1618, they had to come to him and sign a treaty agreement saying that he could stay there. And now that's why you have Yanga today. But as we continue, in 1871, <clears throat> five decades after Mexican independence, Yanga was designed as, uh, designated as the national hero of Mexico. This was based largely on an account by historian Vicente Riva Palacio. Where influential Riva Palacio was also a novelist, 
short story writer, military general, and mayor of Mexico City. In the late 1860s, he found an Inquisition archives accounts of Yanga and of the 1609 Spanish expedition against him, as well as a later agreement. He published that account. Reprints have followed, including a recent edition in 1997. Much of the subsequent writing about Yanga was influenced by these works. He characterized the Maroons of San Lorenzo de los Negros as proud men who would not be defeated. Have to leave it right there, just for that particular uh, African colony. So that was one. That was just one of our utopian societies that we were able to uh, develop. And he was under um, different circumstances. I can't say they were better or worse because we under more mind control and behavior control today. He was mm-hmm. under uh, military threat. Okay. So different mm-hmm. circumstances. Still, he took his circumstances and made a society. So we have no excuse. Another one I want to get into, we talked a lot about maroons. You always hear about the maroons, but they just kind of jump all the maroons up into one uh, people. But they're a bunch of different people. And obviously, a lot of them are African descent. So let's get into some of these um, islands that were started, or these new societies that were started. The early Maroon community was displaced. By 1700, Maroons had disappeared from the smaller islands. Survival was always difficult, as the Maroons had to fight off attackers as well as grow food. One of the most influential Maroons was Francois Macandal, a Hugon or voodoo priest who led a six-year rebellion against the white plantation owners in Haiti that preceded the Haitian Revolution. So they've been doing that in Haiti for so long, and it's so interesting that Vaudun always comes up anytime you talk about a Haiti Revolution. So you might want to keep that in your back pocket, maroon communities. In the mountains, with African refugees who escaped the brutality of slavery and joined the refugee, uh, refugee sorry. Before roads were built into the mountains of Puerto Rico, heavy brush kept many escaped maroons hidden in the southwestern hills, where many also intermarried with the natives. Escaped Africans sought refuge away from the coastal plantations. Remnants of these communities remain to this day. For example, in Denialis, Cuba, and Ajuntas, Puerto Rico. So we just gave three communities you can go see today that was started by Africans. Go see Yanga in Mexico. You can go to Vinales in Cuba, and you can go to Acutas in Puerto Rico. All still stand there today. But that ain't it. It's more. Maroon communities emerged in many places in the Caribbean, Saint Vincent and Dominica, for example. But none were seen as such a great threat to the British as the Jamaican Maroons. People don't even talk about them. All you hear about Jamaican is lot of mercy but you never hear about what they really, really did, okay? A British governor signed a treaty in 1739 and 1740 promising them 2,500 2, acres in two locations to bring an end to the warfare between the communities. In exchange, they were to agree to capture other Africans. They were paid a bounty of $2 for each African return. So we had to throw that in there because there was still a little bit of brainwashing going on. And we got to learn from that. If that is ever offered to us again, that is going to be ripped up and thrown in the trash can of history. We're not going for that. Okay. <clears throat> but let's continue. 
Beginning in the late 17th century, Jamaican Maroons fought British colonists to draw an eventual signed treaties in the mid-18th century that effectively freed them a century before the uh, Slavery Abolition Act of 1833, which came into effect in 1838. To this day, the Jamaican Maroons are to a significant extent autonomous and separate from Jamaican society. So you can even go to Jamaica and live in a utopian society today. It's not like you have to go back to ancient uh, Kemet or to Meroweth or to any of those um, older um, civilizations. You can go right down to Jamaica, right to the islands, and you can see what happens. You can live amongst it. And it goes on and on. We could talk about those in Cuba, Dominica, St. Lucia, St. Vincent, Dominican Republic, Haiti, Jamaica, all of these different um, maroon islands, Puerto Rico, the Central Americas, Belize, Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua. You never thought it was so many free Africans out there. You probably thought everybody that you had come in contact with was some type of a uh, slave for some reason. No, that is not right. the truth. Look at all these people we just talked about. Nova Scotia, in the 1790s, about 600 Jamaican Maroons were deported to British settlements in Nova Scotia, where they escaped from the United States and were resettled. Being unhappy with the conditions in 1800, though, they immigrated to Sierra Leone back in Africa. So they just went back to Africa. They said, you know what? We started our utopian society. It's not as hard as Africa, so let's just go back. I'm not mad at that either. Mm-hmm. I'm not mad at that. And everybody know about the runaways in Florida, the Seminoles in Louisiana, um, North Carolina. Like I said, the list goes on and on and, and on. About, so there is no shortage. Oh, go ahead. go ahead. And what about Chicago? Then the black man star Chicago? You know what? I'm not familiar with that history. You might have to put me up on game on that one. Well, I, I'm not familiar with it, but I heard it. So I got hmm. I, I to gotta check up on it. I sure will look into that because that will go right mm-hmm. into this uh, uh, this little presentation. The whole of what we talked about today was that you have the ability. The game is over. The game is over as you know it. New rules will be in place, like we've seen from the SAT to universal basic income coming in to social distancing laws to staggered schedules for your children to their teachers and them having to wear masks to you having the ability to make a whole new world where you don't have to worry about anything. You set the rules. You say what's right and wrong. You set the social code. And we went over detailed experiences of people who have done it, not only whites, but Africans as well, all over the world, not just in one country. So there is no excuse for us not to be able to see and implement exactly what we talked about today. And the one thing that made it more real than ever is that when we did our Heka'u ritual, we put it into place. That got the ball rolling. That got your vision, your hearing, your feeling, your third eye all open to the idea of what your future is going to be like when you take back control of it and develop your utopian societies. And I think that is a perfect place for us to bring things to a halt begin to wrap it up. All righty. Now, before I open the lines up, let the people know again 
where they can contact you and your uh, what you're offering, your your schooling. Excellent. Thank you. Absolutely, absolutely. Bobby Kintu, who I am, clinical director of the JED Institute of Learning. We are a behavioral and academic service provider specializing in the seven liberal arts and African-centered education. Most of our services take the form of online and in-person tutoring, but we also offer counseling as well as various assessments, cognitive, social, emotional, adaptive, and the like, all from a culturally responsive African-centered perspective, might I add. If you want to find out more about any of our services, visit JediLearning.com, D-J-E-D-I-L-E-A-R-N-I-N-G.com. There you can find our other social media sites. Pick the one of your preference, but we suggest either following the Instagram page or the YouTube channel because that's where we put most of our uh, information out through. You can also contact us through phone, 909-576-0170. We look forward to hearing from you and working with you, and we have met plenty of the family and village out there based on being able to come on Sister Beverly Lee's Truth to Power show. So I do have to give my respects and thank Sister Beverly Lee once again for allowing us to come on, inviting us on, to share this much, much needed information. Yes, and we appreciate the work that you're doing also. Well, and I'm going to you. open thank this line up. Yes, yes. Uh, 732-215, 732-215. Thank you, and good day to everyone. Um, thank you. Um, Cool. Um, what was your name? I'd like to address you by your name, Minister Steve. Baba Kintu. Okay. <laughs> All right. But are you saying that um, it's going to be such a great change that we're not going to have to worry about um, our children being mistreated in the schools anymore? Not worried about them being cheated out of their score, the testing, their scores of testing and everything? In a way, what I'm saying is that there are so many things rampant at this point that are against us that we have to look forward to a day and start to build and plan for a future where those things are not um, hampering us from making our necessary advancements. That's what I would really, that was my real point of view on what's going on in the schools. It is an opportunity. What we see right now is a burning. It's like a, a phoenix or the Bindu bird. It burns itself down so that it can bring itself back up more stronger than ever. Right now, the burn down has happened, but out of those ashes comes that Bindu bird, and that's what I see coming up. It's our ability to create that Bindu bird. Okay, so it's like they're saying because of all, really the virus did us a favor, and it's like causing a brand new day for us, huh? Right, right. I love that analogy. It is you know, a bit of um, go ahead. I'm sorry, you go ahead. Okay. Um, when my daughter was in the fourth grade, um, we, the school didn't do California achievement testing, but they did the Iowa testing, which was the highest test for anything. Okay. And 
She was always way ahead of her grade anyway. All Caucasian wow. schools. She was the only one of us in her class. So anyway, wow. um, I get a letter from them saying that they didn't have her Iowa testing score. So I was like, okay, well, if you don't have it, what are we going to do? So they said, well, what we're going to do is we're going to have to take take her and put her in uh, remedial classes, like wow. take her out of yeah, out of the fourth grade and like first and second grade work. So I said, no, oh, no. I said, don't. yeah, I said, don't do that. I said, um, there got to be something else you can do. So um, they said, well, that was the only thing they could do with her. I said, well, I'm going to tell you what. I'm going to tell right. my daughter, if you come to get her, not to go with her. Right. I said, because I'm telling you not to do that. They're not giving me any proof of anything what really happened. So anyway, right. um, they, they they came to get her, and she did what I told her. I said, sit there, and if they go to touch, you cry, and I'm coming. So anyway, Beautiful. they did come to get her. She started crying and said she was calling me, and I was coming in there with diapers. If they can call right. diapers on parents, you can call them on that school, too. So anyway, good, um, good. what happened is the end result was, so after that, they called me. They said, well, there's three choices. One, she can take it over. I said, I don't need to know the other two. That one will do. Take it over. Right. Uh-huh. So they called me back the week later, and they say, well, listen, we found her scores. Guess what? Oh, they were trying, to, trying <laughs> to hurt us so bad. My daughter was in the fourth grade. She scored 10th, 11th, and 12th grade, and they was trying to take it from her. So, so what you're saying, yeah. So what you're saying now is we're not going to have to worry about that much anymore, right? Well, in, in a way, for the next mm-hmm. five years, the SAT and the ACT, and okay. most tests are being suspended. But in the meantime, they are working overtime in the labs to develop another test to replace it. So it's really about a money situation with them. They are trying to take money from SAT and ACT in order to develop their own tests to make mm-hmm. more money. But the story that you give me is a story that we've heard time and time again, especially on this show. Thank you for sharing, by the way. But if you look back at the sister Kamala Campbell, who raised her score 330 points um, in Florida last year, they didn't even believe that she was able to do that on all, and the college board said she cheated. Mm-hmm. A year later, the SAT is being phased everywhere, so they're getting what they deserve for Carter yeah. and for Campbell. So mm-hmm. this is the, the new day that I'm talking about. Things burn down metaphysically, and they re- resurrect. And that is a this is a perfect example of how that happens. Perfect example. So thank you for sharing that. Story. You know, I appreciate it. They were they were doing that, and they were doing it at the fourth grade level. Remember that guy wrote that book. I can't remember uh, what the name of it was. I think he was out of Chicago about how they were taking the children, the black children, when they get in the fourth grade and doing them just like they did her daughter. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, you remember absolutely. the book? I can't remember. Uh, was it Juwanda Jufu? Yes, yes, that's it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, absolutely. So what was the ritual going on? <laughs> yeah, absolutely right. And what else I wanted to say was, you know, in um, 2011, I was starting my own community. I had no idea of what I was doing, but I seen what the people needed. I had already, I was already living on 10 acres of land in Virginia. Oh wow! And there was, there was seven acres right next to me. So 
I mean, I went and I brought the, the, the seven acres right next to it. I, I even started buying the uh, Triller homes because I was going to house the people. I was going to farm. We was going to have karaoke, <laughs> everything. Okay. And so um, what happened is <laughs> my daughter had her baby. So when she had the baby, you know, you know how women are with these grandchildren. I guess men, too. I had came back yeah. to Jersey, which I still have okay. places here. But I came back to Jersey to take care of my grandchild. So that just stopped everything. But now I'm getting ready to start wow. again. And I want to go to okay. um, West Virginia. Okay. Because, because they don't even mind you having a gun. And what West Virginia did was after all that stuff went on in Virginia where they didn't want the people to have guns and the sheriff from West Virginia went into Virginia uh-huh. was was he was he was for the people having the guns. So then right after that the mayor, the governor, someone from West Virginia came and they said on the on um on the uh Facebook or T V, I'm not quite sure, but they said <laughs> if anyone wanted to relocate relocate there, everyone was welcome. So I said, well, that's what I was thinking about anyway. But do you know? Um, it, it, do you know much about that? Like I hear you talk about the different places. Do you know much about West Virginia or anything there? That's that's funny that you asked that. Not specifically West Virginia, but what I did do before coming on the show was look up the most heavily populated states uh, with black people. Because if we are able to get some type of political control of your area, it's going to take people voting certain officials in because that's just the, the law of the land. So we saw Virginia as a viable option, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, and I want to say the last one was Louisiana. So those are the states that are the most concentrated with us. The next step will be to find the county within those states that are most concentrated because there you can move into those counties, begin to tra- take control of the political situation, and build your community. So that's yeah. a good question. And I guess the first, I'm going to let you go after this. I'm I'm sorry, Goddess Bed, for taking too much time. But is one of the oh, best no. things to do, oh, okay, okay, is to start with your own um, area code or what? I mean zip code. And what do you mean, to, in order to do what? Like have a post office. If you have the post office, that means oh, you oh. have your own government and federal and everything, isn't it? Uh, yeah, that is part of it. But the first thing, and, and a, a lot of things that you want to look at is what people are already doing to slowly take over communities. What they do is they move into the community and they get a mass first. Once they have a mass of people that are going to support them, they start running for basic offices uh School board, chief of police, things like that. And but see, that's what I want to get away from. I want to be like sovereign, just like you were saying with someone else's. I even want the school to part. We'll have our own school right in that community. Everything is going to be in the community. I, I definitely agree. One thing, oh. having practiced this before, one thing that we always ran into is the various laws in the counties where you live. If you can change those, you can then provide any type of education you want. You can change laws to fit wherever you want. It's going to be very difficult to move into an area that is not incorporated and that somebody does not have jurisdiction over to do what you want to do. You have to find somewhere probably out of the country in order to be able to do something to that level. 
but you're always going to want to do it in conjunction. You have to have the political system, but you also have to have your idea of a different way of doing it. So it's, that's a good question. You have to have a balance, though. It has to be balanced. Oh, I thank you. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. No. I was just going to say thank you. Oh, you're very, very welcome. Thank you for calling. You're welcome. And I would love to hear how things are going with you and and your community. I would love to hear that. Thank you. I'll try to let you know. Please, please do. Please let Sister Beth know so she can let us know. Okay. Well, thank Thank you, you. Thank you so much for calling. You both are welcome. We got we got to go to 763301 since about 19, I think they said about 30-something, they've been going over there. They're trying to literally take over Africa. They're going over right, there yeah. pregnant the women. They're, they're, uh, they have, you know, the Chinese put all the clothing shops in our neighborhood and what have right. you, and they're doing the same thing there with a slow takeover, but it looked like, you know, as bright as the aboriginal people are, that how would they allow, and they're going to Africa in droves by the thousand, how would they let them take over the motherland? It's the leadership. It's the leadership. Yeah. That is, that's a good question, and it is a combination. It's like Sister Bev said. Part of it is the leadership, but we have to remember none of those leaders are traditional leaders. They have all been placed there mm-hmm. as vassal kings, basically yeah. puppets that are meant to yeah. carry out the will of the larger structure. So yeah, what's that's going why on they piling up in there so that they can have the majority of the say. And that's exactly how the Chinese specifically work. They understand that they have to get a majority rule. That's why we always talk about majority rule and having home rule because that's the only way you're going to have decisions made and decisions passed. The latest information I have on the China takeover is that they've not now started to put military bases and police forces. So they're mm-hmm. ramping up the takeover. So you're absolutely correct, but it wasn't overnight. And you have to remember some places in Africa have been so devastated that they need that infrastructure. They need roads. They need hospitals. They need schools. So if the Chinese come and say, you know what, we're offered to build you these roads, but I need you to lease me out this copper mine for 99 years, then hmm. that's what they're going to do. So that's the type of negotiation that they've been doing for water rights, land rights, cobalt, iron, all of the, the natural resources. Yeah, so you're all the minerals, the natural minerals. You have, and we have and to learn. They've been doing that here too. They've been doing that here too. True. Okay. You're right. All over the world. In the Americas. Right. Absolutely correct. So you, you're right on it, sister. You are on the right information. But what we need to do from that situation is learn what they're doing, stop it, and then if we need to, 
also practice a form of that as we look to start somewhere anew, okay? Hmm. We have to adapt. We have to be like chameleons. We're in a new environment. All of that was running through my mind, whereas with some of, you know, our people going there with building, doing, because they're they're making train stations and, you know, and then they try and get snooty with the doggone people to which they have come there to take over. Right. And I was getting so angry listening and, oh, just listening to it. But it's on YouTube, uh, African talking Chinese and what have you. But gosh. No, it's good to hear your pain and, and, and the feelings that you have because the listeners out there who come across this, they need to feel that and understand how important that is that we make changes. So for you to mm. give us that information, is necessary. So we thank you for that. Thank you. No, absolutely. We appreciate you. Hello? Hello. Yes, I'm here. I'm sorry. And, oh, okay. and you know what else? They're very prejudiced. They're fighting people of hue in China. But yet, they all got their butts going over there, you know, in droves and family members and stuff. I'm just, I'm so appalled yeah. at the people that's allowing it. And then the women is like, ooh, I got a cheese mine, <laughs> right, <laughs> instead right. of being with her own man. Exactly. And, you know, I had a partner who just moved to China and practiced psychology out there for a good two or three years. And I would ask him, what is the relationship like between blacks and Chinese in China? And he Mm. said it was a big mix. They didn't have problems mixing with the black people. They actually saw black people as um, almost like superstars or superhumans. But yeah, there were were the the upper echelon who looked down on them. The common people had a very good outlook, whereas the high-ranking officials looks down on them. And that's pretty much mm-hmm. how it is in a lot of societies and cultures. The higher right. you go, the more prejudiced um, the views are. Because those are the people that have to make the decisions about how to keep the current state going. Right? So we should Well, the guys that, that I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. I apologize. The guy that married to African woman, he's a lawyer, and he was involved in the upper uh, society, mm-hmm. and right. he left the job there to go to Africa, Zimbabwe, I think it is, in okay. order, because he loved, you know, the way the land looked, and, you know, right. he's contemplating, I, I'm listening, of, you know, him and his his people building, making it better and doing much more uh, exchange while they're stealing the land and then they're having these babies, whereas one of his kids, the Chinese and the African woman, he said Mm -hmm. he wanted to go and learn how to do the gold mines. He's already being planted for 
participation of taking over the gold mines already. Now, what we need to be doing is sending our own caravans out there to do something similar, but in a more friendly and exchange-driven way. As a matter of fact, I watched a clip not too long ago where a sister from here was going to Ghana and building houses in a certain area to start her um, utopian society. As a matter of fact, somebody sent that video to me after the last time I was on the show. So I might have to send the sister Bev so she can um, send it out to the people. But there are mm, some okay. of us out there doing the work. And what we can do is we can help support those people to do more of that work. So, yeah, they're not the only ones out there doing it. We have to get on the boat or else we're going to get left in the water. Okay? So you're right. You're bringing up the right information, but how do we counteract that? We have to start making those inroads. There's no reason with the money that we spend on Jordans and everything else, we can't put a little bit of that towards rebuilding. Period. Yeah, well, they shouldn't be allowing the the Japanese Chinese to be buying up none of that land that is ancestral and that right. oh my goodness it, it it's just okay yeah just a different form of, of colonization it's a different form they're not coming out with with club swinging they're coming out with money dangling okay carrots dangling that's their method. Yeah. Well, thank you, Paul. Well, in Chicago, they're doing black-owned banks, so they need to be doing it everywhere. Out here in uh, uh, Los Angeles. So you're right. That's one thing we also can do. I totally agree with you. Thank you, Paula. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, Baba uh, Kentu, again, thank you, and uh, we're going to continue, and uh, thank you for your time and the work that you're doing in the community. Thank you so much, Sister Bear, for the opportunity to come on and bring this much-needed information to the people. Uh, We love and respect you, and we can't wait to do it again. Yes, we will. We will. The timing is perfect, so this is needed. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Thank you. Peace and love. Okay, My Hotel. Okay. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Until next time. Yeah.
Stampede meal. It's only at McDonald's, where there's a meal for every morning. And nothing says morning like a classic sausage McMuffin with egg. Right now, get this all-time favorite for just two bucks on the one, two, three dollar menu. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. Ba da ba ba ba.